This episode is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne. Decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. Hello there, Julie Reynolds here with you. Our special guest is Peter Farnan from Boom Crash Opera. He's going to tell us how the band actually got together. So stick around. It's coming up after this. He's part of one of my favourite, all-time favourite Australian bands, Boom Crash Opera, Peter Farnan. Welcome. Hi, Julie. Are you fibbing when you say that? I'm not fibbing, You're just no. being polite? No, I can tell you the amount of times that I've seen Boom Crash Opera. I can even remember once in Myers you were doing an album signing. Do you remember when you used to do album signings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you used to have to go to record stores. Yeah. Dale always used to try to get free records out of the people at the end of it. Did it work? Yeah, oh, sometimes. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we'd, pl- we'd, often, we'd often play music too, so they got a gig out of it, so that was all right. The signing that I went and saw you do was at Maya, and I can tell you, pandemonium ensued. There were just people everywhere in Maya trying to get a piece of you. It was really a bit crazy in the, in the early days, wasn't it? Well, yeah, we, we sort of had... Three phases of the band, or a four, you, I guess you'd call us still being around a fourth very long phase, but that phase you speak of was really when we first appeared and Countdown was still on the air. We were all very young. Dale was very good looking. As you all were. <laughs> I, I, I always cast myself as I was the big brother figure, you know. I wasn't the sort of object of desire for young, uh, young people back then. I'm being self-deprecating. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I don't know how to come back from that. From, but going, well, I, I thought you were the cute one. I thought all the girls thought that you were the cute blonde one. Well, they, they used to... They, look, they all... There were types, I think. Why are we... Why am I talking about this? I don't Dale know. was clearly, you know, sort of gorgeous. But Maz, the drummer, was he was also this big, gorgeous physical type. Uh, Richard was kind of dark and mysterious... Uh, I don't know what Spock was, actually. He was the keyboard player. I, I can't remember. And he, I was kind of the little guy. The well, other guy. you were very energetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still am, to tell the truth. Yes, you uh, are. We, we, we actually played. And I, I came off stage going, note to self, stop jumping around so much. Really? Yes. It's a bit too much sometimes. No, I think people like it. Unless it's hurting you physically, I'd say keep well, doing you have it. Well, you have to watch that these days. You have to sort of engage the core before doing anything dramatic. Now, and there's often a sore neck the day after. So you formed in 1985. Uh, you spoke of the other members of the band, Greg O'Connor, Richard Pleasance, Pete Maslin on drums, and, of course, Dale Ryder, and your good self. How did you all find each other? It started with Richard and I. We were part of that sort of post-punk scene in Melbourne, you know, that a lot, a lot of the Hunters came out of it and Crowded House kind of came out of it, or at least some of them. <laughs> Richard and I noticed that all the bands that we were in were really good but wouldn't stay together. They'd kind of fizzle out after a few months. So Boom Crash Opera was really a project about taking that energy from that inner Melbourne post-punk scene and and taking it to a larger stage and keeping it going for longer. 
you know, we, we had to sort of ferret out people. We found Maz and Dale actually in a cover band, which, you know, we were a bit snobby about that back in those days, but in fact they were perfect, absolutely perfect. And Greg O'Connor, the keyboard player, was really the, the golden find because we kept getting all these musicians who were really flash, and he turned up and he was more like a sonic architect. He, he didn't play... He wasn't a flashy player, but he thought conceptually and visually. So he was perfect. So we, we sort of got the right kind of blend of of kind of commercial GP appeal and uh, and artiness, for want of a better word. And Greg was very interesting to look at. He always looked like he should be flying, I don't know, a World War II fighter plane or something. He just yeah, had- yeah, he had that... He had that look for a while, the pencil moustache and the sort of, uh, yeah, the weather-beaten brown leather jacket look. He, he kept transforming, he'd keep changing and from year to year there'd be a sort of new iteration of him with some new kind of design concept around it and we'd sort of follow that. So what did you do? Did you hit the pub circuit? Did you think to yourself, we've got a whole bunch of songs here, they're pretty good let's go out and play them to everybody or were you already playing and sort of added the songs to the set list? Well, we were very we were foolishly and naively ambitious and we didn't want to do some slow grind until we were discovered. We decided we're pretty good. Uh, we're just going for the main game straight up. And so we sort of engineered it that our early, first gigs were full of people which got the industry talking, which got the industry chasing us, Long story short, the first single was an enormously successful record and it was all a little bit kind of hypey. It was pre-internet hype. It was sort of, if you told enough people, this is big, this is serious, you, you better not miss out on it, then people came along and that's we sort of engineered it that way. And then we realised once we were underway, touring, yes, doing all those pubs, you know, endlessly touring, that we actually didn't quite have it together and we had to go through a bit of a sort of growing up in public phase where we actually got things together. Were there bands from around Melbourne that you loved and, and sort of aspired to be or were you sort of brash young men that went, we are who we are, who cares who anybody else is? Look, in the very early days, we were decidedly influenced by other Australian bands and I, Richard Pleasance, who I started the band with, we might argue over this because I think he might put forward the line, oh, we were originators. But I very much remember sitting in his, you know, writing songs with him in Carlton before the band started going, let's nick that. And uh, the things we nicked were unison singing, big, like a footy team singing, that sort of uh, everybody singing the same note rather than harmonies. And we kind of nicked that from Midnight Oil and we nicked it from, from the models. We were big fans of Midnight Oil and the models. And... Um, we nicked a lot from those two bands. A lot of people thought when we appeared that we were nicking, we were kind of like in excess, but that was more because Dale and Michael shared a kind of reptilian attractiveness. You know, they were both, they had hair. They had a lot of hair. <laughs> and they knew how to use it. <laughs> yeah, and they knew how to use it. And, and in fact, that was not a model. And Dale wasn't even particularly aware of in excess. You know, Dale was into... African-American music, he was into R&B and soul. He was far more fancied himself as Stevie Wonder than Michael Hutchins. And he couldn't even understand, why Why am I being compared with this guy? I barely know him. I mean, they became mates later on, but, you know, I, I felt a bit sorry for Dale copying that all the time. Well, I suppose it was, for Dale being so dramatically gorgeous, you also then had to work a little harder for people to go, you know what, this guy's really talented, and so is the rest of the band. 
Well, as I mentioned earlier, we also weren't as good as we thought we were <laughs> when we started, so we had to kind of grow up in public. But it was pretty obvious early on that we, we, those early singles had their own thing. You know, it's Great Wall and Hands Up in the Air, you know, had this big, enormous kind of brashness. And it, we didn't sound like those other bands. I mean, that's what you always, that's what you strive for as an artist, you know. You want a, a sound that's instantly recognisable as being yours. And uh, I th- we managed to get there pretty quickly. You know, despite growing up in public, that first single, we, we got there with the help of a, a really good producer. You can hear that sound. You can hear it in Onion Skin and other songs further down the line as well. Our guest is Peter Farnan, guitarist with Boom Crash Opera. And let's go back into the vault and we'll continue to talk about the life and times of a young Boom Crash Opera. It was hard going. It was an odd time. But it sort of worked out for the best, really, because I think we we really pulled up our bootstraps and be- took the live show up another level when Rich left because we had to. Uh, what I missed was the writing collaboration. And interestingly, <laughs> I'm writing songs with him again, so I've you know I've been going up to his place a few. He moved to the country. You know, this is we're talking the beginning of the '90s. He had to have a change of life. The, this problem he was having with his ears was uh, crippling him and he just got out of town, went somewhere quiet and uh, inverted commas got his act together and um, yeah I, I, we, you know we still we play on each other's records, we work together um, we're all in the, the entire band family still is in touch with each other and we you know it's like a bunch of brothers you can't get away from it. And I suppose there were times where you laughed, you cried, you fought, you screamed. <laughs> I remember a night when we danced together. We had a party in our apartment and we were all just dancing together. We did that too. That's, I suppose, a true indication of brothers in arms, really, isn't it? Which is what a band mm. is. I'm sure it's much harder for people to understand what being in a band is unless you're in one. It's very insular, but it also is projecting outwards to thousands of people at once. So it's quite quite an an interesting dynamic there. It is. Well, I I do, you know, 2020 hindsight, I remember noticing how people seem to be attracted to us, even just hanging around us and becoming self-conscious or consciously aware (laughs) It's a tautology of um, that, that there is an energy that if if the band is an effective band, there's a kind of gravitational pull that, that pulls people in that they just kind of want to be around it. Despite the fact that when you're in the band, there are schisms and you know you oh, I'm sick of that person. But in fact, the to the outside world, it's a very tight thing. So it's they're, they're, and then the next thing is as the years pass and the band kind of ebbs away. Nobody really understands what we all went through together. You know, other people go through their 20s and into their 30s and they, you know, have their jobs and live their lives and have their own sort of battles or wars. But being in a band is a particular kind of going to war experience. I don't mean, I don't want to make slight of real war and real suffering. It's not suffering. It's more just that banding together thing and... Only a few people, you know, other people, musicians I know have been in big bands. We can kind of eyeball each other and go, we both understand each other because nobody else gets what it was like to be doing that. It's not an easy thing. Well, there's the physical exertion of performing, but there's also a kind of 
uh, deeper psychic energy that you have to find to generate the artistic reason why you're doing it and what you're doing. You know, that has to, it's like a deep underground river and you have to make sure that that's flowing and that, that it's fed and that it is in fact there. You know, that's the difference between a, a real band and, say, a cover band. A cover band doesn't have to have any subterranean depths because it's drawing on other people's, you know, it's going to other wells. But that, that's, a, that's a very, you know, that's a thing that you've really got to look after and nurture. You're talking about what are we doing and why are we doing it and where are we going next. And sometimes it's just automatic, isn't it? Well, ideally it's automatic, you know, and in fact you want it to look like it's automatic. You, in fact, but you have to do that that deeper work so that it can just pop up spontaneously. It's like the overnight success that took ten years to get there, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I usually don't talk about the band like this. It's, a, it's I think it's the first time I've ever talked about this sort of thing. And it, you know, so people like Greg O'Connor, Spock, our keyboard player, was intrinsic to, you know, doing that sort of deep excavating to find, you know, but what are we trying to say here and why are we doing it? I suppose the band went on a hiatus. People did other things. People had other projects. You might have been a little bit, you tell me, were you a little burnt out just from, you know, so much touring and and recording and people wanting a piece of you constantly? Yeah, look, I I remember when Richard went down, it really wasn't just the years. It was also this kind of tour. You just kind of crack it on tour. Suddenly, you know, he couldn't get out of bed. And I looked at it at the time and thought, what's that about? And I hit that about four years after that. And also having kids. Like, I went, all right, I'm having a family. I can't do this touring thing. The thing we didn't do in the 90s was we didn't put out a press release saying we're breaking up. That's it. We just kind of stopped. Went away for a little while. And we just went away. And we sort of didn't reboot it until many years later. And really that was just kind of for fun. And, And really from there on we've just... We've kept that going. You know, we've worked on some new material, but it hasn't been that sort of driven career thing. And that's because we all have other careers, you know. Like, I I went into theatre and I did a lot of theatre composition, a bit of film. Richard went into film and TV. Um, Maz plays in uh, Mark Seymour's band. And Mark's play, Maz has played on just about every Australian record. He can't even remember them all. Things come on the radio, he says, I think I played on that. <laughs> I think that's me. That sounds like me. <laughs> I suppose Facebook and all that sort of stuff you're on, that's a yeah, little bit different for you now, isn't it? Oh, very different. It's very immediate too, isn't it? You sort of do a gig and it's already online before you're off stage. I, I would imagine that it's a little difficult to try and embrace that part of fandom where people are like, right, I'm gonna, this is going to go live. And suddenly it's very raw for you because you were in a room with, let's say, 450, you know, 600 people and it was right there, it was right then. There might have been a, a camera, somebody snuck in a camera and took a sneaky shot. But now the whole performance virtually is on Facebook, so there's no room for error or <laughs> that must be quite confronting. Oh, it's great. It's you much like better it? now. Oh, yeah. Look, you know, we were so paranoid and sort of control freaky back, inverted commas, back in the day. And uh, this is great, you know. And you, and also the communication we have with fans these days, because we're all older, so it's it, it, it's a very you know how are you how you know, you've had kids you know how's your health it's all that sort of thing now you know we're, there's not that sort of distance or that oh my god it's it's the boom course and boom crash you know 
that sort of thing which we had when we were young. I would now imagine just... you see quite a lot of faces that you saw 30 years ago. We do, we do. And it's, and it's lovely now. It's a really sort of heartwarming thing. To make sure. And, that... the songs, and the songs still stand up too, and that's the great thing. That Absolutely, they're all still they alive. stand up. You've had one of your songs used for a commercial in recent times, Dancing in the Storm. Is that something a band strives for? So there, there's a big change from the 80s to now. Like back in the 80s, it was the kiss of death to have a song in a TV ad or sell it to an advertising campaign. And now that's a desirable thing. And young acts are going, oh, if, if they can get their first song attached to an advertising campaign, they love it. It's quite different. Thank you for spending some time with us. Thank, Thank you, Julie. And you're a great band to go and see live. Please don't stop jumping around. <laughs> That's part of the thing. You know the thing? Engage the core. Engage the core. Exactly. <laughs> the, have a bath afterwards with some nice salts or something like that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thanks for listening to the Move Me podcast. Find us wherever you get your podcasts from and on our very own page on our producer's website. Look for audiolemonade.com. Follow the links there. Little hint, I'm the producer and the editor too. And if you are after a producer, editor, mentor or coach, that is a great place to start to find me. Listener.